Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 34 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Lodick. Episode 34. 34 and still not canceled. And still not, well. (laughs) Because we can't be. Because it's like tenure, right? They can't (laughs) fire us. They can't get rid of us. I mean, I guess technically they could fire us. They could delete us from their download feeds. They could delete us from their download. Well, you you listeners could fire us. That's right. But we'd still be tenured law professors. That, well, we'll see. That might be the case for abolishing tenure if I've ever heard. The so, case who's your made. favorite thirty-four? Like Nolan Ryan, Charles Barkley, Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker, uh, Shaq in his L.A. days versus his Orlando That's days. Me. I wasn't prepared for this. I, I would have done some cheating research. Well, this is why to put you on the spot. No, I, I came up with Herschel Walker. I feel like that's uh, a, that was a good our, our DC listeners might be saying Bryce Harper, and which at which the Mets fan in me just cringes and says, "Wait till he's a Yankee, everybody." Oh boy, yeah, that uh, that's unfortunate. By the way, David Wright having uh, oh. shoulder surgery now. There was a joke going around last night about like the Mets injury report, and it was like you know it was all it actually took Karen, my wife, like about thirty seconds to realize that it was a joke. Oh, <laughs> like it, it wasn't until she got to the point about Noah Syndergaard's arm actually having literally fallen off. Um, and then she goes, did that really happen? Yeah, it was on the set of Game of Thrones yeah. where he was an extra. Um, all right. Anyway, Alas, we can't talk about Game of Thrones this week. We may have, gosh. We may have to focus on national security Except, and law. Except, you know, there's, part of why we're rambling is because it's another quiet week, at least legally, Yeah, and national I, security Yeah, and I almost space. hate to say this because I feel like it's it sort we're, of— we're, we're, we're begging. We're jinxing it. Well, yeah, it's true. Actually, I do think generally, Steve, I wonder if you agree that life is better when we don't have as much to talk about. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, our listeners may not agree, but I'm. I when we have too much. Do. When when we have too much content, something's wrong. Right, right. So, so I guess there's not much that's trending all that good in the world, but maybe the the temporary blip or this this uh, trough of national security law news. Now we have a few things we we want to talk about. So one, for example, there's a an interesting uh, data point about uh, dom- domestic uh, captures of Islamic State material support defendants. Uh, that number has fallen through the floor, and the Deputy Attorney General talked about that recently. I, I think we can chat about that a bit. Uh, hey, that, that's that Rod Rosenstein guy. I remember that. Wait, he's not just part of the, the TV show? You know, the, the Trump TV show? Oh, story? well, there's there's also that. Yeah, yeah. No, he's also got a day job, ladies and gentlemen. And, um, uh, he, there is there is yet again news out of the military commissions, although in this case it's actually not the most exciting news. It's just a, a potential trial date for the 9-11 trial. All right, so and we'll use that as a springboard just to observe you know, what what is going on day in and day out. Well, and also, and, and I know that you've been waiting anxiously by the by the computer, Bobby, for the Justice Department's briefs in opposition to certiorari in Nashiri and Abalul. They're due tomorrow. Actually, we should have put off recording so we'd have more to talk about. <laughs> um, you know, the North Korea is still doing its thing. Um, I don't know that there's a lot to say there. I do, you know, given that we're recording this on Tuesday the 5th at around 2.30 Central Time, I do think it's worth saying a little bit about the news this morning about DACA and the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. No obvious national security salience, but insofar as we tend to think executive power is at least part of our bailiwick. Yeah, at first, at first I was skeptical, as you know. I thought this is really kind of outside of our land. And then you realize we had nothing else to talk about. And then we realized we had nothing else to talk about, and what the heck. And, and if we stall long enough, we might not have to talk about the 51-41 disaster that was the UT football team season opener on Saturday. I'm afraid that without Game of Thrones to dwell on, uh, my my new interest, of course, is the college football season. And alas, that, that, that went fast. I think we may, we may have to say a few words. I'd like to give a few postmortems on that horrible game. 
And uh, perhaps- although is it possible that UT had the only the third worst loss of a big time Texas football program over the For weekend? Every dark cloud, there is a silver lining, or in this case, a double lining, or of, or, or a one double A double lining of, of Baylor and A and M goodness to help out their brothers here in they Austin. Actually, they, I, I think their losses were worse. You know that'll be a fun thing to talk about. It's degrees of badness. <laughs> whose who's loss was the what was the what most was the most devastating loss? I, I gotta say, there's a case to be made in all three directions. Um, so way to go TCU for holding up at least your end of the state. Wow, that's all we got. That's all. We got. You know what? I'll take where's, it. Where's UTEP when we need him? All right. So so you know, in all seriousness, I mean, we we should start with um, I don't know. I guess maybe the the Rosenstein stuff and yeah. And so, ISIS. so here's here's what's going on. Um, he gave a talk out in Utah last week at this big conference on national security that I think occurs out there every year. Uh, it sounds like a really neat event. And um, are, I, are you are you just are you just trying to get an invitation? Yeah, exactly. Well, if, if they would hold it during ski season in particular, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, other times of year, also nice. So he, I, I perused the speech, and I, and it really caught my eye when I saw his reference to some of the data on uh, FBI arrests and DOJ prosecutions of would-be su- individuals trying to go abroad to support the Islamic State, uh, you know, going to become fighters or to do other things. And by way of background, I'm not going to throw out particular numbers here, um, but I will just gesture in broad strokes towards the pattern. Uh, for about a Two and a half year period, uh, following soon after the the big surge to prominence of the Islamic State and its and relatedly its capture of a tremendous amount of of territory in Iraq and Syria, uh, it was remarkable how you at at some points it seemed like every single day there'd be news of an arrest of somebody at some airport someplace trying to take off or maybe coming back from uh, an attempt to go get to the Islamic State's territory to to fight, to train, to provide support, what have you. Invariably, these became prosecutions under 18 U.S. Code 2339, capital B, not subpart B, capital B, the 1996 material support statute. And and by and large, uh, I would say actually not just by and large, but in all these cases that have come to decision so far, it's always either uh, a guilty plea or a conviction. The government always wins these cases. Uh, Why is that? Well, in part because these are cases where either through a tip or through good fortune or uh, a signals intercept, or the role of a confidential informant. One way or another, uh, the government learns about these individuals and then monitors them for a while, collects evidence, collects intelligence, and then steps in at the point where the person seems to be about to leave the country. Or in a few instances where they weren't going to leave the... Well, in a few instances where they were not going to leave the country but were considering doing something violent here. But I will will say, I mean, I think that's that's certainly true. I would add, and 2339B is not a specific intent crime. That's right. And so once they have, you know, that that piece of hard evidence that connects someone to the designated foreign terrorist organization, it's not the kind of case where they actually have to try to prove that the defendant was acting with malice aforethought, that the defendant actually intended bad things to happen. They just have to show that he knew or should have known at the time he provided the material support that the group was on the FTO list. That's right. And in fact, I, I've often described 2339B as a form of inchoate criminal liability that's in some ways much more expansive than uh, certainly attempt, but even conspiracy in the sense that you're just trying to show that, as you say, the person knew which group it was that they were taking an action towards and supports defined really broadly to include providing yourself as personnel. Right. So buying a plane ticket could be an act of material support if it's to transport you to the group. Yeah. There's attempted material support right there. You're trying to get your 
yourself yep. there. You can conspire to provide material support. You can kind of concatenate the inchoate offenses. Wow, there, that's a that's a that's a sentence. Yeah. It so, is. so so what do you suppose is responsible for the downturn? Right. So I think that there's a, there are a number of reasons, and of course there's no way to, to prove this. But here are my theories. First of all, obviously the dramatic reversal of fortunes for the Islamic State itself um, out of Mosul. You know, it's 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 increased. It, it, they just retook. Uh, I think U.S.-backed Syrian forces just retook the old city in Raqqa. Um, its territorial footprint is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. It's vastly harder to get there. It appears to be an organization in in severe retreat, which is not to say the threat's gone away, but it's an organization in severe territorial retreat. Many people say that's in part and parcel with the uh, the emergence of uh, out of theater attacks by Islamic State sponsored or directed individuals. But either way, the idea that you can go there and go live in those circumstances and be on the path to victory doesn't sell anymore. But it sold real well in some audiences a couple of years ago. So the message has declined. Uh, some might wonder if. Uh, the awareness of just how many arrests the FBI, FBI was making there signaled to people that you're, you're just not going to be able to manage this. And so some people who might try to go abroad maybe are deterred. You'll never be able to prove that, but it, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if that was true in a few cases. Uh, and then here's another possibility. Another possibility is that when you read the indictments and all these earlier rounds of cases and the, the criminal complaints or the affidavits supporting the arrest, invariably there's a reference to how that there was somebody who was posting on a public uh, forum, maybe it's on Facebook or elsewhere, and it drew the attention of the FBI or drew the attention of an informant. It is possible that there is still some greater amount of, of activity in the way of material support and that the people that are still in that pool have gotten wiser about where and how they communicate and are no longer doing these things that are very likely to draw the government's attention. Hmm. So um, does that suggest in any meaningful way that there's a broader conclusion to take about sort of the options available to the government or is it just the possible? I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is, so, so your thesis is that it's the numerator that's going down, right, not the denominator? I think that the denominator is definitely going down. But, there, but, but with the numerator. I, I think there's a, there's a combination, yeah. right? I, and I would think that the trend line, uh, the numerator is shrinking faster. Right. Right. Um, the derivative I, is negative. Man, that's way beyond my mathematical <laughs> ability. Somebody give me Susie Morris to explain this to me. Um, all I know is the, the number of actual arrests, it's not gone away. I mean, there was just, right, a, sure. you know, we're still getting some trickle of these things. But there are fewer of them. But Right. And, and it's tempting to say, oh, this is a great story about how law enforcement stepped in, spotted these problems, and in a traditional law enforcement capacity uh, has has intervene in a very effective way. I think that's probably true. I think the bulk of the benefit actually is coming from the military successes from a variety of, of armed forces fighting the Islamic State. And then there is this question mark of, is there also a bit of learning such that there's still some of these guys out there, but they've gotten much savvier about their communications? I hope that's not the case, but I wouldn't be surprised if in a few instances it is. So I think that's where we are with a domestic Islamic State-related right. terrorism prosecutions, of course, one of the, the themes of recent months has been, well, what about non-Islamic State terrorism prosecutions, and, and more specifically, non-jihadi-type uh, cases? Uh, now, the material support statute, as we've talked about a few times on this show, doesn't really come into play there. It's, it's specifically designed to prohibit support to 
designated foreign terrorist organizations. So unless you have a foreign terrorist hook that the person's connected to, 2339B is not going to work. Uh, there are plenty of other federal criminal statutes though, that could come into play, just not this one. Hmm. So I'll just have to see if the, what the what, what additional data we get on the trend line and whether there's some broader policy initiative that comes yeah. out of this, it. So file this under the heading of just recurring storylines yeah. for the show. So speaking of terrorism prosecutions, a little bit of news trickling out of the military commissions, which continue to just thunder away at their incredibly rapid pace. It is a, it is a slow tortoise of a process. <laughs> uh, so Steve, although, you, although the tortoise does eventually win. You, that's true. Interesting. Well, you know, the wheels of justice, justice grind slowly, but eventually we might get to a trial, which is something you mentioned in our intro. Yeah, so um, it sounds like Judge Polls, the presiding trial, presiding judge, pardon me, in the biggest trial of them all, the trial of the nine defendants who are allegedly the masterminds of the 9-11 attacks, um, is really trying to push things toward a January 2019 trial date. Um, that's new. That's news. Um, it's now September of 2017. Yeah. So I, when you said that, uh, you had mentioned earlier before we started recording. I didn't. I in, our, in, our, in our extensive in our prep, extensive our pre-show, uh, prep. pre-show prep, you mentioned that there was a trial balloon about the trial date, which I like. Um, and I, I hadn't noticed you said 19. I think my mind just processed 18. I thought, well, that sounds darn ambitious. But you know, this has been going on for years, so I suppose maybe. Uh, but. 2019 is the target? January 2019, yeah. for the beginning of the trial. Here's a serious question. If pres- 42. If President Tr- <laughs> I thought we were talking about 34. Yeah. If President Trump today said, you know, this isn't working. I, I want these guys on a plane tonight to, you know, to New York. We're gonna and Congress to- repeals the transfer yeah, restrictions? Yeah, no, you know, it's a hypothetical, so we're going <laughs> to. If, if they somehow could get, him into a, get them into a courtroom, uh, how long could it be before an Article Three? Uh, prosecution could uh, have an opening statement. About the same. Yeah. I think about the same. I think it would be about a year. But that would be, I think that's probably right. And I think that would be with actually starting from scratch on a lot of issues. They'd still get there in a year. Yeah. And they would definitely get there. Oh, no question. And And it would be a capital trial. Yep. And pretty likely, I think the government would win that trial. You know, uh, neither of us are bucking for an appointment to the CMCR, so I think well, we can say that. Now we've locked it out. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, listen, I, I said all along, right, that if the goal here was justice and effic- justice and efficiency in whatever ratio you prefer, um, right, right now we have neither. Is there any way to kind of s- split the difference? There, so there are political forces that do not want people brought into the United States, at least from this pool. Right. And, and who also have a, just a sort of a visceral attachment like Guantanamo, got to keep them at Guantanamo. Um, is there any way to do a federal civilian Article Three based trial down there? Sure. Um, so there are actually a series of proposals to this effect about, what, four or five years ago, I think? Yeah, and I don't remember the particulars. So the hardest issue turns out to be the jury pool, the jury veneer, mm-hmm. um, right? You can move it, you can, by statute, right? You can create a district court for the District of Guantanamo, or you can extend the jurisdiction of the Southern District of Florida or even DDC to cover Guantanamo. Okay. You can move a judge down there, right? The question is, from whence do you draw the jury pool? There are a lot of people down there at the, the Naval Station. So the question is whether there are enough civilian, right, employees in, you know, living at Guantanamo to form a viable jury veneer. Might be a little bit tricky with the uh, challenges for cause, um, or at least, well, I mean, it's, this kind of gets into a question of judicial jury management, right? Yeah. I mean, Well, this, and, ima- and imagine if the defendants waive their right to jury trial in exchange for, right, an Article Three proceeding. A bench trial before Judge Lamberth or something like that? Yeah, or someone someone in that of Whoever. that ilk. 
right? That that would be something. I mean, yeah, just, now, it's, it's just a non-starter in Congress. Like, and, like, like all good ideas in domestic policy these days. Well, and here's a question too. Like, so let's say you did that, what you just described, and you made it a, a D.C. Uh, district judge. Were they? I don't know what their practice is. I know in the Southern District of New York, case allocation is spun out of the wheel. Yep. They actually have the wheel. They turn yep. it, yep. draw a name out. I assume it's something like that. Um, wow, that's a, that's, a <laughs> that's a rough that, assignment. That actually should be that should get the same sort of treatment that LeBron's choice to you know originally move to Miami, <laughs> like a whole evening special. There could be all these backstories they could get. So, so I don't know. I don't know if they still do this. When I clerked on the Ninth Circuit, you know, because the Ninth Circuit when it sits on bunk, it doesn't really sit on bunk, right? It sits in a panel of eleven for a brief period of time, fifteen. And now we're back to eleven yeah. of the twenty-eight active judges. And the way they would choose, even though they'd use a computer to pick the three-judge panel, the eleven-judge panel they would do with the wheel. And what they did was there was this whole big contraption that the clerk's office on the Ninth Circuit would bring around to each of the chambers. They'd alternate. And it was the chambers in San Francisco where the clerk's office is. So there were only six judges at the time in San Francisco. So we in my judges' chambers got to pick every, every you know, one out of every six on banc quote-unquote panels um, from the wheel, and the clerks took turns doing it. That sounds actually pretty fun. Um, now, it's fun the, unless you pick the wrong panel. Right. Well, maybe this is thinking of it wrong, though, because I would imagine uh, that this probably actually would need to be the Southern District of New York. I mean, could you you've, – you've clearly had a grand jury working for, you know, what, a decade and a yeah. half or I, so. You, you could do EDVA this. tied to the Pentagon. Yeah, I suppose you could. I mean, there's no reason it has to go to whoever might otherwise. There's no constitutional reason, right? And so, and so, on the assumption that you would need a statute to do this, I mean, listen, this is yeah. not happening, right? I mean, well, why not? Like, why? Maybe this could be a way to just get this over every, with. Listen, everyone and their mother has come up with a proposal for how to save face and sort of spare the military commissions, and Congress just isn't buying it. Now, I still think, had President Obama really sort of put whatever political capital he had to spare behind then Attorney General Holder's decision in, what, fall 2009 yeah. to try this case in New York, things could turn out differently. But the fact of the matter is the Obama administration caved to public pressure. And once they did, there was no going back. In retrospect, taking that not to Manhattan and activating the antibodies of, you know, right. oh, it's in the middle of this crowded city, but taking it to the, the vicinage for uh, Shanksville, yeah. Pennsylvania, might, yeah. have, might have been a smart move. But yeah. that's all Or Florida. Do it in Miami. I mean, the, right, the Jose Padilla trial was in Miami. I mean, you don't, you know, for, for, for you don't necessarily, if the defendants are picked up overseas, right you, right, you have a pretty decent argument that Congress, at least by statute, can adjust the venue to whatever the heck it wants. Well, so here we are trying to restart that debate. Not happening. Currently, it's not an issue, but I'm always hopeful of grand bargains. But Yeah, so am I. But this Congress. Um, but going back to the trial date in the 9-11 trial, which was, of course, the provocation for this yes. uh, uh, discussion, here's the problem as I see it. Even if everything goes perfectly in the pretrial proceedings, and if the track record to date is any indication, it won't. It won't. There's still the pending interlocutory appeals on two of the charges. There's still the pending questions about the composition of the CMCR, right? There's still the mandamus petition in the 9-11 case about whether the military officers can't even serve on the CMCR. I mean, like, this stuff has to be sorted out before we get back to pretrial stuff. And then there's all this continuing pretrial litigation over secrecy and access to yeah. evidence and, you know, 
what statements were voluntary. Right. That, so that one, I didn't know about that until reading a, there was a summary post at Lawfare last week talking about some of the the, just the ongoing churn of daily pretrial litigation. Which and, is remarkable. I mean, oh, it's, 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 it's extensive, as, as it should be. It's just remarkable that we're only just now getting to some of these issues. Yeah. But one of them was the, the admissibility on voluntariness grounds of statements to the combatant status review tribunals, yep. which... Um, ah, the good old C-certs. Yeah, the C-certs. And, and of course, that, I assume, also extends to any other interrogation-related statements that didn't involve the lawyers being present. That's not resolved yet. I was I was stunned to Bob, see that that's... The, the, wait, yeah. the military commissions have not resolved whether and to what extent the Sixth Amendment applies to these proceedings at all. And yet, and yet every I, the same post mentions the judge poll begins each weekly proceeding by reading their rights to the defendants, which is funny because so much of the anti... Uh, so much of the narrative about don't bring him to civilian court is, well, you're going to give him rights. It's like, well, the judge reads them no, no, no. rights I mean, every right, week. Right. The reality is that the actual, like, justification for the – like, the no, best – blew the coop long ago. Right, right. The best remaining arguments for the commissions are almost all inertia and not actually, like, you know, affirmative, normative cases for military commissions over civilian courts. No, I'll say the following as someone who thinks that the way that the, the commissions have evolved on, on paper, they are – you know, they're very similar to civilian criminal prosecution uh, procedure and evidence in, in theory. At, at the very least, courts martial. Courts, and certainly courts martial. But there's really, like, no one would look at this in the abstract and say, what, well, this one system's wildly different from those. They've, they've merged and eliminated some of the original case for using them in doing so. Well, that's the thing, right? Um, I, mean, right. I mean, right. The great irony is that for all of the reforms that have been accomplished by Congress, by the executive branch, by the lawyers, right? Those reforms have had the effect of defeating the purpose. It, it, yeah, I think so. And so now the case remains one of symbolism, uh, which is not nothing, but, but it's— It continues to be a jobs program. Well, it continues to be expensive. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the amount of money— I mean, listen, the amount of money the government's spending to pay both, you know, the government lawyers, the judges, and the defense lawyers. I mean, right, they're all government lawyers as well. So I just, you know, I— I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it until I'm blue in the face. Like, I have all the respect in the world for the folks who are involved in the process, who are just doing their level best to turn lemons into lemonade. But they're lemons. And and there are going to be lemons from now until kingdom come. Well, what, what bothers me at the end of the day is that you have people, and I don't mind saying that. I think KSM and Ramsey bin al-Sheev and all these other people are very clearly guilty of these offenses. I would like them to have their day in court. And, and the victims deserve to see them get their day in court and then justice meet it out. In a way in a way that we can have confidence, right? In a, yeah. in a way that gives us confidence that this was an act of justice, not vengeance. Yeah, well, I, you know, in this case, I'm, I'm not worried about that, but I am worried about perceptions of legitimacy right. Right. that overhang the existing process right. and that don't seem to be going away as it and grinds so, along. And so, you know, this is why I think folks really ought to keep paying attention to the pending cert petitions in the Sharon yeah. Because, you know, at some point, I think whether it's, whether it's now or in 2024, right, the Supreme Court's going to have to get back in on this conversation. You know, there's a there's a there are books and stories galore about the, the idea that it's not the destination, it's your journey. In this case, truly, uh, the whole policy actually seems to be one of assuming that we're just going to carry on with yep. this and just being in the process of working through the issues. Yeah, it's, that's the disposition mechanism. It turns out it's like a, a some sort of a purgatory of pretrial process. So, so I think it's safe to say that on January 2019, you and I are both taking the over. The over, yeah, <laughs> Inc- way incredibly. the frack over. Inc- <laughs> that's the technical term. Incredibly, for, for despite the fact that's a year and a quarter out, I think I take the over. A year and now. a quarter out into a trial that's been going on for you know even under the current system eight years already. Take that, Bleak House. Oh, Bleak House. Okay. Um, 
I don't I don't think that's the last we're going to have to say about the military nope, commissions. We'll be back. Another one of our continuing themes. What else, if anything, do we have? So I, I, we should talk a bit about DACA, right? So so DACA, uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, let me just do a little bit of background and then just to put in context what happened today. Um, so it's important to keep in mind that there actually are two different programs. They often get blended together because they sound similar, but they actually, at least in my view, Bobby, have separate and different strengths legal defenses. Um, so DACA is the first one. It's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, it's a derivative of, of what had been called the DREAM Act, um, which basically all but passed Congress and then fell apart. Right. The key being didn't become law. Right. Um, so DACA was basically a proposal for individual non-citizens in the United States out of status, right, who are often called illegal immigrants, which requires me to add my normal sort of clarification that it's not actually illegal to be in the country out of status. Not a crime. It's not a crime, right? Uh, it's a deportable state, yeah. but it's not criminal. You don't have the legal right to be here but you're not a criminal. Right. Um, Although you might be if you've re-entered after. No, no. There are, lots of other, there are lots of offenses that you could commit in the process yeah, of, right. of either entering surreptitiously or re-entering without right. permission. And I, and I would agree with you, I think, that these labels do matter because they have this sort of, not osmosis, but sort of an atmospheric effect on the debate, especially amongst non-lawyers who are, who are hearing these terms thrown about and do tend to conflate the categories, right. which is serious. It's serious, especially with DACA, right? So DACA, you have individuals who enter the United States sometime between birth and their 16th birthday. Right. Right. And, and entered not so much of their own volition. Right. And presumably entered with, you know, either because they were brought across by their parents or a family member or somehow or other otherwise snuck into the country. Right. Um, and the theory is, is that, you know, why should we punish children, many of whom don't know any existence other than their lives in the United States, if they've been upstanding members of the community, if they haven't committed a crime, right, if they haven't had to require, you know, too much reliance on public resources, right, if they're actually contributing in a meaningful way. And so the idea behind DACA was if you meet various criteria, no criminal background, right, gain, you know, employment history, paying taxes, like all these things, yeah. right, um, the president would promise that for a period of time, you would not be subject to deportation. Now, because Congress didn't pass a statute, he couldn't do much more than that. No, that's right. right. And so you couldn't is, change their status. Is it fair to say that was, in a, from a legal perspective or a formal perspective, what he was saying was, I will exercise as chief executive my discretion, prosecutorial discretion, or in this case, enforcement discretion. Exactly prosecutorial right. is not the right word. No, enforcement, enforcement discretion. discretion because, well, we engage in enforcement discretion all the time. We can't. We don't have infinite resources, and so I'm going to choose to focus right. on uh, criminal deportee or criminal removal eligible people or other individuals who yeah. po right. And so, I mean, there's a, there's a right. statistic that I think is really important here, right? By most, I, I think there's widespread agreement that there are roughly 11 million individuals living in the United States states who are not lawfully present, right, who are undocumented immigrants. Right. Um, at its maximum, the government has the capacity to deport maybe 350 to 400,000 of these individuals a year. And so the question is, for any president, regardless of your party or politics, what are your enforcement priorities? As in that group of 11 million, who are going to be the 350 to 400,000 that you're going to prioritize? So just to put on our con law hats for a moment, here's mine. Uh, do you have yours? Uh, it's over here. Oh, there you go. Okay. That looks like a Mets hat. Put on, well, same difference. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the question is, on one hand, of course, as a practical matter, there's always enforcement priorities. You don't, you don't 
try to enforce everything at once. On the other hand, there is the take care obligation. So what's the best answer to the critique that by explicitly sort of zeroing out the possibility of enforcement for a whole category. For a, for a, for a particular period of time. For, for a particular period of time, but you know, not a short period of time. Yeah. Um, how do we square that with the take care clause? The obligation in the constitution that yeah. the president shall take care that the law shall be faithfully and, and executed. And I think the idea is that part of the obligation to faithfully execute the laws is the obligation to set enforcement priorities, right, that are um, not necessarily dictated by the Constitution, but that are not inconsistent with the Constitution. So take a different example, right? Um, why can Colorado legalize marijuana if the Federal Controlled Substances Act says it's actually a controlled Very substance? Very good question. Right? Um, and the answer is because the Justice Department, at least until recently, um, right, had promised to not exercise its enforcement discretion, right, to go after particular low-level recreational consumers and users of marijuana that would leave it to the states. Now, the, all of this suggests that now that we have a different chief executive, it would be equally legitimate, however much as a policy matter we might not like it, but it would be equally legally and constitutionally legitimate for him to say, well, I have a different enforcement priority, which so, is how the defenders of these new developments right. are, are so, so let me let me let me sort of fast forward. Let me let me let me finish the factual presentation, and we can okay. get to what happened today. So, DACA itself, um, the one other piece of DACA that I think was controversial was, in addition to promising no deportation for two years, um, it met app eligible in individuals would also receive basically work authorization. Right, that the various federal laws that don't allow companies to employ undocumented immigrants would be not enforced. Right, as applied to individuals who qualified for DACA. And did they have to identify themselves? Yes. Ah, would you say that they had to take some steps in reliance on Well, so on this is where things start getting messy. Framework. So this is, this is where there's going to be litigation. Right. Um, now, um, DACA itself was not as constitutionally objectionable as the successor DAPA program, which was the Deferred Action for Parents of Childhood Arrivals. Right. As long as and now that your kids are here, now there's like this bootstrapping effect. Right. Well, of course, don't want your parents to be taken out. Uh, so it begins to, the the effect spreads. And That's you right. see where people start thinking, now hold on a second, what about enforcement right. of these laws? Exactly. So it was actually the latter program and not DACA that provokes the lawsuit that becomes Texas versus United States, where Texas and 25 other states sue the federal government um, on the ground that the um, subsequent deferred action program, again, not DACA, was a violation of the Take Care Clause. Okay. Um, the Fifth Circuit ruled in that case, not that it was a violation of the Take Care Clause, but that the administration had violated the Administrative Procedures Act in the means through which it had adopted the program, a super technical and in any other circumstance correctable procedural defect. The case goes to the Supreme Court. This is sort of a, there was a lack of notice and comment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the case goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court divides 4-4, right? And so the Fifth Circuit decision is affirmed by an equally divided court, and there really wasn't time for the president to basically fix it, right, before, or for President Obama to fix it before he left office. So DAPA was defeated by the Fifth Circuit ruling on Administrative Procedure Act grounds, and then the administration changes over, and no one's going to try to promulgate it now, so it's dead. So DAPA, the, 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 the second deferred one. action program, the parent one, I think, yes, dead. Um, but DACA was never subject to the same critique, right? DACA, there was a closer argument that it was actually consistent with statutes Congress already had on the books, right? It made more sense as an enforcement, as, as an exercise of enforcement discretion. The litigation that's getting a lot of discussion on Twitter is not about DACA, right? It was about the second right, program. Right, So was there litigation? I mean, there must have been a take care clause suit filed by somebody. I don't know if there was, and if there was, it didn't go anywhere, yeah, right? Okay. I mean, DACA was- Probably because at the end of the day, there are lots of choices that executives make all the time right. in this area. Now, this is where things get messy. So. 
the attorney general this morning um, announced that the government was going to rescind the DACA program mm -hmm. because he was of the view that it's unconstitutional. Um, now, this gets us back into the whole messy fight about, you know, the, the attorney general's duty to enforce a law that he does or doesn't think is unconstitutional. Well, let's assume for the sake of argument he's yeah. just flat wrong on the constitutional yes. argument. Nonetheless, that doesn't change the fact the executive branch has the so this is, authority right. so, so this to what I want to say. So, retract so it for the I don't, hell of it. I don't disagree at all with the notion that insofar as DACA was an example of executive enforcement discretion, the new president is allowed to have different priorities going forward as applied to folks not yet in the program. Right. The same argument kind of cuts both ways. Right. So so there's no doubt in my mind that there's no obligation on the part of President Trump Attorney General Sessions to allow folks not yet who have not yeah. yet applied to the, for DACA to apply for DACA. But I hear a distinction there, and one I think I agree with, uh, there Which, are people right, who rely— 800,000, right? Yeah. So there are 800,000, roughly 800,000 individuals who relied upon the existence of DACA, who provided all of their information to the government, right, yeah. on the belief that um, this would only be used for good. It wouldn't be used against them. So is this, does this create a due process argument? What's it, the it nature of their reliance claim? So, this, so, so he, what's unclear, at least to me, from what we know so far about what happened today is what's going to happen to these folks. Now, one option is to do nothing while their current DACA status remains live and just not renew it in two years, right? Because the DACA, DACA was always temporary, with mm -hmm. the idea being that you might be eligible for subsequent renewals, right? And so um, your reliance has to be colored by that expectation that it's no guarantee. Right, that continue. you didn't have a right to renewal, right? That you have a right while you're, during the period that you were told you'd be eligible for the program, you have a right to continue receiving its benefits. You don't have a right to automatic renewal at the end of it. Makes sense. That to me is the least litigation provoking approach the administration could take, right? To sort of not act against current DACA recipients, but simply stop renewing right. new registrations. Um, there's still an APA question about whether they have to go through notice and comment, right? About whether. Well, but did the original order? So DACA itself did, right? The revi the second version had notice and comment problems. The first version didn't, right? Did, wait, wait, just so I'm clear. The, yeah. the, the initial DACA. 2012 DACA. Did not. Did go through notice and comment. Oh, it did. Did, it, not, did not raise APA problems, right? So far as I understand, it was the second version. It was the November 2014 program that Texas sued over. That was just dropped directly. Interesting. Okay. So, right. So I guess what I'm trying to suggest is as long as the administration dots its APAIs and crosses its APATs and doesn't do anything against folks until their DAPA eligibility has expired of its own, I don't know that there are obvious legal, legal challenges here. But that assumes that the administration will do both of those things. Right, right. And did we get any indication today from Sessions, either in his formal statement or in any Q&A that occurred, or any the, statements from anyone else? He took no questions. Right. Or was there any, you know, you know, senior government officials talk to reporters afterwards? Just, I don't think – I haven't seen anything suggesting that there was a deep background briefing. So this this reinforces my impression that the administration is still not of one mind about what it's doing Correct. here. And to a certain extent, it's trying to have it both ways. They're trying to signal yet you know, to the crowd in their base who's very fired right. up about immigration. We've ended DACA. It's over. Right. But at the same time, Trump himself has repeatedly said, like, look, we're going to take care of you if you're a kid. We don't need to take an action against these kids. Um, and they seem to be holding out the possibility that this won't result in enforcement action against them, at least within the window you're talking about. And, and indeed, and it at least leaves open the possibility, although I have no reason to suspect that this will be true, that they will never 
go after folks who were ever part of the DACA, the DACA program. Well, and related to this, uh, I think he tweeted today. Now, Congress, it's, it's yours so, to deal right, with now, So this right? is the pivot. So the pivot is, right, there's no question that the administration decided that insofar as it couldn't agree, yeah. right, the easy option was just to kick the can down the road right. to, to Capitol Hill. And instead of just saying, we'd like Congress to legislate status quo in the meantime, they decided they would go ahead and, and give a little whistle over here and say, yeah, we're ending it. But only in six months, right? In so, six months. And, and so it's a little bit like the sequestration model, right? There's this big right. thing that a lot of people are going to be pissed about. Right. We're going to hang it out there six months away, get to work. Right. And as we know from sequestration, maybe Congress will step in. Maybe they won't. So, there, and there, so let me just say, so six months, right? First of all, if you're the attorney general and you actually believe that DACA is unconstitutional, then it should be just as unconstitutional to extend it for six months, right? There is something hypocritical about saying it's totally unconstitutional. That's why we're dropping it. Oh, but we're going to keep doing it for six months. Like, well, I don't we don't get give that. him too hard, too hard a time about it. It's better that he that he not follow through on it. Oh, that. no, no, no. It's better from the perspective of my political preferences, right? But it actually, I think, undermines to some degree the legal argument. Again, yeah. we agree that the legal argument is not actually doing Ironically, the legal argument is not doing the work. Right. Um, Listen, I'm with you 100%. I don't think like kicking the can down the road to con- – I mean, there's a reason why DACA happened. And it was because even when President Obama was in charge and was aggressively pushing the DREAM Act, right, he still couldn't get it through Congress. I don't know why President Trump, who, let me just say, is not going to be aggressively pushing legislation. He's just going to be mocking people on Twitter, is going to be able to accomplish something that President Obama you could know, not. I don't know about that because in part, you know, obviously there for eight years there was a lot of uh, – positional opposition to anything that might come out of the Obama administration that for that yeah. crowd is not going to be the same this time. Yeah. And maybe there's a Nixon goes to China aspect of but, Trump uh, taking the position he has kind of. Uh, but we're back to the same problem, which is the which is the disagreement within the Republican Party on the question of immigration. That's right. Now, the interesting question then is, does the party uh, try to maintain a party wide position right. or do you get a split where there could be a bipartisan coalition on doing something just for DACA. Don't touch the Don't rest touch everybody of else, all these just, issues. Right. If if you are the DACA, if you, uh, and, and you could even, in theory, just not even do it for DACA. You could just do it for people who have already received DACA, that's right, right. which is an you even could, smaller class. That's right. The, the bolder thing to do would be to uh, perpetuate this going forward. I wouldn't hold my breath on that. But I think that the, the just thing to do is to lock in the benefits for everybody who came out under DACA and identified themselves. I, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. Um Far be it for me to have any faith that Congress is going to do the just thing, especially given the pressure they might get from the White House to attach funding for the border wall to any well, bill so on that, DACA. That's the, I think that's the poison pill in yep. the room. If they try to work it that way, I think that will cause a huge problem. Yep. Um, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and predict that they get they, that doesn't happen and they get this done. Huh. And that within the next six months, there's going to be some kind of, some kind of uh, DACA-type relief legislation just for those who were already under that umbrella. Um, I really hope you're right. I am not nearly as optimistic. Yeah. And, 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 and let me just say, and, and I hope you'll forgive me for making an editorial comment, um, and it's just mean. I mean, like, there's there's no compelling national security reason for ending DACA, right? There's no compelling reason. These are not jobs that people, you know, that folks who are citizens who are here lawfully want, right? Those are not the jobs these people are taking. These are not folks who have committed a crime. These are not folks who are doing anything other than contribute to the community. Some of them are students in our very law school, right? I mean, I just, I, I'm not... You and I don't always see eye to eye on policy, and I'm not asking you to. My own personal view is you ought to take policy initiatives because you have, like, you ought to f- pursue policy initiatives because you have an affirmative case for why this is good policy for the United States and not just because you're screwing over people who support the other Sure, guys. no, I think we completely agree that the moral case, when you're talking about people, they didn't, these were children. 
They were not adults who chose to come in in violation of the immigration rules. They were brought in. And that's just it's just and they don't of, and they don't know any other life. I mean, right, like, and the qualification, right? No, the idea that you're going to take some person who's you know effectively Venezuelan, lived their entire life here and, right. and shunt them off to some other country they know nothing of. It's just kind of cruel. Yeah, and 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 I don't know why. Like sometimes you know governments have to pursue cruel policies because they're overriding imperatives. Right, right. But there's no there's just politics on their side. I, right. Of this. I just right. don't see the overriding imperative here. I agree. Um, now, go back one last thing on this. Please. So let's say that I'm wrong. They don't get anything done. Yeah. The litigation is the only way these people are not going to get removed. Yeah. Um, what is the best? Uh, so there's a, there's an APA process claim. There's an APA process which, claim. Which at best would kick the can down the road. That's right. Which they, you could just go through the right process. Right? right. I think the question is, if the administration starts acting against folks before their DACA eligibility is up, then I think you've got an open and shut due process claim. Yeah, procedural right? that, due process. That you had a vested interest in not being that, – that the government – it's kind right. of an equitable estoppel. No, that's right. Just the, the weighing of the interest and in the process and so right. forth. That seems to favor them. And then but, uh, but, but, but beyond that – But beyond that, I just, I just don't see the argument that DACA – created some kind of right, permanent. permanent right to create a property interest or a liberty interest yeah. in you, perpetual well, renewal of the You'd have to argue, I'm just trying to think this through, you'd have to argue that the part of DACA that induced you to out yourself and identify yourself yeah. in a way that exposes you to a much higher likelihood of actually being identified, um, that, that, that there was somehow an expectation that would never be used against you even after the period. But the problem is that, that, sounds, fact, like, that the, sounds like self-incrimination and yeah, these are criminal cases, right? No, but I also just think that it doesn't really work because you knew it was a temporary period. You knew you were rolling the dice. Well, and I'll bet you, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I'll bet you that if you go back and look at the, at the sort of DACA application, Right, it probably some disclosures. Somewhere I along the way, right? I'm sure this there was, creates no right for me to not be. Yeah, I imagine you're totally right about right? that. Right, and if that's true, then you know, unfortunately, I think this really is is a a crisis calling out for a political solution, not a legal one. Yep. And so uh, let's hope I'm right then that there will be one. Uh, man, I as as ever as in most things, I hope you are right. <laughs> Excellent. Um, it's just it's I I just like. There are fundamental disagreements in American policy, like, you know, how should we regulate corporations and how sh- what kind of financial rules should we have and how involved should the government be in different industries and who should be responsible for, you know, providing health care and health insurance. Fine, right? Um, what the heck did these kids ever do to deserve this kind of, I just, I, I can't get over the cruelty of it. I think that's right. I, I think just, it's, it's important to keep, in, in all conversations about DACA, to keep emphasizing these were people who were minors or even infants who had no – there are prior exceptions, right? I'm sure yeah. there were like 16 year olds, 15-year-olds. Right, right, no right. doubt about that, even younger, traveling on their own or what yeah, have you. Yeah. But in that case, that just calls for mercy if that's right. what their situation right. was. Um, in most of these cases that are at the sort of the center of the DACA ID, idea, it's, it's a family unit that yeah. made a parental decision to cross and brought the kid with them, and they didn't have any – you know, saying this. And at the very least, I mean, listen, if, if we have listeners out there who think that DACA is, you know, who, who have problems with DACA, that's your right. But please have your objections be based on what's true about DACA as opposed to misinformation. Well, that's always a nice quality for all. all yeah, of I our couldn't issues. agree with that more. All right, um, what else? Have we got other issues to talk about? The Texas football team? Speaking, uh, of, speaking of things that ought to be given, shown mercy. So, you know, we used to say, we'll pause here for those who don't want the spoiler. Uh, we'll pause here for those who don't want either A, a depressing conversation football talk, about college football. Or, or B, the gory details of, of just the, the horror show that was Texas football uh, in its opening weekend. So, so, so if that's not your cup of tea, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening in. Now, the uh, Tom Herman adventure, week one. So I th- I'd say my first words are, let's not overreact. It's one game. Uh, that, the loss at home to Maryland. 
You know, the the, the Terps 50, are... 51 points. They look like monsters to me. I think they're going all the way this year, well, so, so Right. So listen, if it turns out that Maryland turns out to be the sleeper team in the Big Ten... Right, right. What right? if? What like, if? But remember a couple of years, was it... Was it when, when did we beat Notre Dame? Well, that was last year. Right. No, it's the mirror image of Notre Dame. Like, last year we came out of the gate. We're like, hey, we beat Notre we Dame. We beat Notre Dame. Look how good we are. Like, it turned out Notre Dame was pretty Notre Dame was terrible. And it was like, yeah. oh, that wasn't that Well, what was so disappointing was that you expected what... No one should have expected the team to have already reached full maturity right. as, as a champion-caliber team. But what everyone did expect was that the indiscipline that characterized the team over the past few years, the, the, the silly penalties, the, right. dri- the relentless tendency towards drive-killing holding calls, um, and especially foul-ups right. on special teams. Right, special teams, like getting a, a block kick return blocked, for a touchdown. Multiple times per right. game, not being able to field the ball. Dead ball the penalties, right? Like, yeah. unsportsmanlike. I mean, this, oh, yeah. this is just, by, uh, by the way, I never found out wh- who, who came off the sideline. I don't know. Well, I'd like to know that. It, it, it would have been me if I was there. <laughs> Somebody knew. So the point, for those who didn't watch it, was that the past several years, the University of Texas, this flagship football program, has suffered from just – just sort of the sorts of things you think. Why can't the coaches right. take a tighter, take tighter grip on this right. team and prevent that kind of knuckle self, knuckleheaded stuff, self-defeating knucklehead stuff? Yeah. And man, like all the sort of the items on the litany of, of charges that were leveled against Charlie Strong. Right. I gotta say, Got Charlie must on, right. he, Charlie must have felt pretty vindicated <laughs> looking at this. And he's like, "Yep, oh there, there they go. Yeah, they blame that on me. They blame that on me." And yeah. lo and behold, it's this stuff's still happening. Um, Maybe the right way to react to this is like, it's okay, it turns out it takes a lot longer to fix this than people thought. That's right. That's right. But I, just, um, but, but you, I guess I'll, I was just looking for some sign that Tom Herman was going to have some effect on the team. And I just didn't see it on Saturday. Well, yeah, and I just hope it's just a matter of too yeah. soon to say. But I mean, yeah, I mean, Saturday looked a lot like some of the worst games from last year. It looked, no, it looked, everybody's saying it looked exactly like the painful UT yep. games of not just last year, the past three years. Yep. Um, the running game, unfortunately, what we're, what's different was we don't have a running game right. anymore. Right. Now, so, I actually think it was there. I think there's a play calling error. Yep. Um, now, granted, we were having tons of success with the short passing game. Shane Bichelle is really accurate up close, although that's I not That's not going to last. His, his vertical passing game wasn't his characteristic uh, accurate right. one, the, and, and he's, not, he's not playing right now, or he might not play this weekend because of a shoulder injury. I wonder if that's related. But in the meantime, you think, all right, put it on uh, Chris Warren the third's back, uh, son of, uh, you know, the famous NFL pro, and uh, he got I think six or seven yards per carry for the few times he got the ball. But we just kept passing. I can't say that the offense was failing to move the ball, but there were times where you just needed to be able to go to the run, and we kept with the pass anyways. But let's not pick on the offense. The defense still can't tackle yeah. after all these years. Well, they can't tackle and they can't cover downfield. No, I mean and, the number of the number of wide receivers, you know, running wide open down the field. I mean, it's not like it's not like Maryland has like a dynamic passing offense. Uh, we'll see, but it sure, <laughs> sure seemed dynamic. Unfortunately, the only so so I took I took I took solace from the college football weekend in two respects. Yes. So well, the first is give me the, the good news. The other team to which I'm fiercely loyal, the University of Michigan Wolverines, looked fantastic against Florida. Now that could be because Florida sucks. That doesn't help me at all. Um, but I felt I felt good. I felt like you know right. maybe Michigan really actually could vie with Penn State and Ohio State for Big Ten. Hey, don't forget Maryland. They're in the same uh, division. Was that Heroes or Legends? I can't remember. I cannot. Keep, or did oh, they abandon that? I don't. The big the big. You mean the Big Sixteen? Um, <laughs> so actually, this is really so so funny aside, right? Um, the Big Ten has this commercial. Right, oh, where, where they go over the country. Where they go over the commercial. Country. It's a badass so, commercial. So it's 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 beautiful. It's well designed, um, and you know it's really cute at first. Cause it's like look at all these schools so close to each other: Purdue, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Rutgers. Michigan State. 
And then they get to Rutgers, <laughs> right? Um, and wait, and there's one more. Um, well, now it's Maryland. And Maryland, right. Then they get to, and I'm like, wait a second. This map just got, it's like the, the great New Yorker cover, Saul Steinberg's great 1976 cover. The view cover, from New York. The view of the world from Ninth Avenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's like yeah. the view of the world from the Big Ten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Michigan had a very good. I mean, Michigan, yep. they, Penn they, State too. Both Big Big Ten comes out the gate looking very strong. And listen, it was thirty three seventeen, but seven fourteen of Florida's seventeen points were you know touchdown passes thrown by the Michigan quarterback, uh, <laughs> right? So it was actually you know thirty three to, to he had three. A highly productive game. Um, he he threw a whole lot of touchdown passes. It's just too bad two of them were to the other team. Now I gotta say, if you know, so Texas is we're a little shell shocked, but our friends down the road at college. Well, so, so I was gonna say, so so the so the first thing I took away was Michigan. The second thing I took away was at least we didn't have a game like A and M or Baylor. So let's focus on A and M first. What's really worse to just truly get flat out beat by Maryland, uh-huh. or to, to look, blow a to or, look, or to blow a thirty four right. point like lead. You're playing a much probably a yeah. much superior team. You do great at first, yeah. but then you choke and you and you blow the game. Second biggest comeback in the history of Division One A now FBS college football. But they looked better longer than we did. <laughs> so now now we both lose our quarterbacks. We lost ours maybe for practices, maybe for the week, maybe right. a little bit longer. Their guy broke his foot, yeah. so they're they're down to their true freshman quarterback. Yeah. We're da- we're probably down to our true freshman. So, so, quarterback. so I'm gonna say I. I think the the Texas loss is more embarrassing because it's at home, right? Um, oh, but it wasn't on national TV wait, wait, the way that but, the Jerry but Jones the, But the A and M loss is embarrassing because they were celebrating. Like the right one of the guys broke out the the scepter, right? Like in the oh, third quarter, yeah. dancing around with it. Like you can't, you know, you cannot start dancing until until the fat lady has sung. Oh, A and M. So and then, but at least, right? Neither our beloved Longhorns nor the Aggies lost to a one double A school. <laughs> Liberty at home. Baylor. At home. No, that is really astonishing. And, you know, it seems like every year now there is a deal like this. Well, it all started with App State when they did oh, it to Michigan, Michigan. At, the, at the nadir of their so Karen, fortunes. So Karen asked me, Karen's like, why do these little schools go and play these games? I was like, no, 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 that's not the question. Right. It's a reverse, right? They, they get paid a ton of money. Right, but also, like, worst case scenario, you lose as expected. Best case and, and scenario. You, and you walk away with a paycheck. Yeah, yeah. Best case scenario, you, you take him down. Well, so this is the thing. So Howard, right, Howard beat... Um, UNLV. This this game did not get huge national attention, but Howard, you know, my my local DC Howard University Bison. Also, also now apparently Jim Comey's like teaching there. Is that right? Oh yeah, I saw some bits saying that he's got some kind of position. Damn. Yeah. Okay, so um, Howard with by the way Cam Newton's younger brother is quarterback. There's something that's really yes. um, so Comey ha- and Newton together. <laughs> so Howard goes into um, UNLV right um, as a 45 point underdog. Um, and beat UNLV at home. The greatest upset of in any game in which there have been odds in college football history. Really? First time a 45-point underdog won. That's incredible. Well, that, I wonder if how much that just tells us how uh, thin the betting market yeah. is and the odds makers uh, lack information on both UNLV which, <laughs> and, and Howard. You know, we, we do tend to think UNLV, oh, the running revs, Jerry Tarkanian, uh, it's a big-time program. But, of course, in football, they've, they've always been marginal. Yeah, but, but, I mean, so Howard marches into UNLV, takes their pride, and $600,000 on the way out. Now, that's Vegas, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that's practically the bumper sticker. No pride and give me your cash. All right, so, so there's a great story. If, if folks are still listening, um, I seriously doubt which that. I, so do I. Um, Jason Cohen has a fantastic column. Uh, it's online in the Texas Monthly. I guess it might be ready for, for next month's edition um, about Texas football exceptionalism and no. exactly what we should be thinking about Texas football after the weekend that was. 
All I can say is I think it's going to be a long college football season for any major Texas University football fan. Not not for TCU fans. They had a nice, ordinary showing beating the Patsy in the first week. Yeah, That's yeah. the way it ought Good to be. Good time. No, no, I think I think TCU can, and I both. By the way, I will predict for you now that both NM and Texas will have pretty good seasons. Really? Oh yeah. So yeah. you so you still think eight plus wins for? Oh no, I didn't say eight plus wins, <laughs> but I th- I think both AM and UT will be in a bowl game. So here's my big prediction: having seen the whooping that uh, Alabama administered to Florida State on Saturday night, I think this is finally the year that it's clear to everybody that the SEC and the Big Ten are just head and shoulders above everybody else. Two years ago, no one would have said that about the Big Ten. And yes, they're really good this year. But if they can come back the way they did over two years, yeah. wh- you know, why wouldn't the Big 12, why wouldn't the, the Pac-27 or whatever it is? So who's, so who's your Big 12 team to beat? Oklahoma State right now. Okay. Yeah. Well, they're, they're good. And, you know, they're so off the radar screen. Yeah. No one pays attention to well, them. Well, because they're in Stillwater. Right. They're, but they're they're a really good team. I don't know about OU so much, but I think that <laughs> OU, Oklahoma State, and TCU will, will contend for the title there. Um, and then UT will try to get itself back in order in the middle of the pack. Uh, but all of this is it just it's all part of the jockeying for position for once these television contracts run out. And we might have to devote a whole episode sometime oh, gosh. to uh, be projecting, you know, what would realignment, what's it going to look like, and what is the media market – like, where is the money then? Yeah, that's right. All right, so I have two questions for you to, to go out on. Okay. Right? Two, two sort of write down our predictions for the future questions. Mm. So the first is uh, Texas football, seven and a half wins over under. Over. Over seven and a half. All right, that, um, that's just some uh, that's some love that, of UT that, That's an associate right dean talking. That's so, right. That's so, right. So the person who doesn't have an administrative job is taking the under. Yeah. And indeed, yeah. if we, if we could push, I'd push because. That pushing is exactly what you two would do. Um, <laughs> you watch. You right, watch. So, so who's your final four? Um, final four right now. Alabama. Well, duh. Uh, Penn State. Ooh, big call. Um, I was tempting to say USC, but I, I was watching. You know, I looked at what they did. In I mean, the they did not look that good against it's Western Michigan. Of, like, like what happened with UT being ranked twenty three, and what yeah. happened after we beat Notre Dame last year with the big programs. When you're when you're supposed to be good, there's a little premium that yep. goes into the rankings, and yep. so I'm not sure. Uh, not sure who else I'd throw in there. Uh, I'm gonna stop there. What have you got? So you've got Alabama and Penn State, right? So far. So I'm gonna say Alabama, Clemson, because I think someone's gonna come out of the ACC, and I don't know why. You know, Clemson defending national champs. Yeah, yeah. If they can not obvious he's going to take him down. Right. I mean, especially with, with, with you know, Francois out for the whole season mm-hmm. for Florida State, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see an ACC challenger coming along. Um, so Alabama, Clemson, I've got to say it just out of brand loyalty, Michigan. They're going to somehow I figured you would get say that. through the Big Ten. They're going to knock off Ohio State, right? Um, and listen, I think a second Big Ten team could very well compete with a Big 12 or, you know, SEC or uh, not SEC, a Big 12 or Pac-12 team for that fourth slot, you know, maybe Penn State. So big, the Big 12 has been bumped out before, thanks at least in part in the to past. To not having a title game. And so now we're going to have one. And, of course, what everyone thinks is bound to happen now is we'll have, let's say it's Oklahoma State. They're going to run. Like a two-loss team wins yeah, the title game. It's like they're number six in the country. They've right. run the table. And then they lose in the, conference. in the title game. Right. And then and then they have to play OU a second time. Right. And it's it's a rivalry game. They yep. lose by one point. Yep. And then Big 12 sits on the yep. sideline where everyone goes for the bigger you know, the Big Ten schools. Yep. Uh, stuff like that makes me <laughs> nuts. Um, and, it, of course, will lead inevitably to the calls for, why can't we have a, a great an eight? eight-team playoff. And to which I say, let's do it. So do I. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a long conversation to have about college athletics um, that maybe Bobby the administrator shouldn't have. Um, 
Right, but <laughs> are you suggesting that I might be compromised in my opinions on this? Subject? I'm just saying that, that 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 given that one of the two of us might one day actually be a good person to give a real you know administrative job to in this university, and that it's not me. Um, there must be somebody else in here. <laughs> um, well, there there go there are bobbleheads. Um, if the job is offensive coordinator, I'm ready. Well, it can't be any worse than what we've got right now. I don't know. I, I think. It, Tim Beck will be fine. All right. So uh, just really quickly, so so I'm taking the under on UT with seven and a half wins. I think we're looking at a seven and six season and a totally mediocre bowl game. Um, Alabama, Clemson, Michigan, and just because I got to pick somebody, Penn State. Okay. And I will look forward to seeing some combination of those teams uh, who don't make it from your list up against UT in the National Security Law Podcast Bowl. <laughs> which- Brought to you by the National Security Law Podcast. <laughs> and the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. Formerly known as the Toilet Bowl. <laughs> All right. Well, on that on that loopy note, uh, so next week we actually I think we're going to have two episodes, right? We've got our regular episode next Tuesday, and we've got a special taping next Thursday with the General Counsel of the National Security Agency, Glenn Gerstel. Well, you're right. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> next week's a big week. Yeah, Glenn will be here, and we will we will talk with him, and uh, we will see if we can bring him down to our level of uh, mindless jocularity and frivolity, and frivolity, and yet maybe a little bit of uh, red meat as well. And to set that up for our our uh, normal episode next Tuesday, um, I think we'll do. An NFL preview. Very good. Okay. Since, since we'll have the Giants Cowboys game in the in the rearview mirror by that point, I'll be able to tell if the Giants are for real or not. Or the Cowboys, how they're going to handle all their uh, mm, excitement. Uh, excitement. Uh. Yeah. All right. So on that note, uh, we somehow managed to stretch this to 55 minutes. <laughs> Let's stop the bleeding. Uh, so we'll talk to you guys next week. Stay safe out there. Adios.